Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. And I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. We're podcasting from Northeast Ohio. This is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series, Race and Democracy in Northeast Ohio, a collaboration with the School of Peace and Conflict Studies and the Center for Pan-African Culture. This project includes a 10-podcast episode series focused specifically on the intersections of race and democracy in Northeast Ohio. We're also planning community workshops on the topic of race and democracy and developing online curricular materials, such as activities, toolkits, and concept pages. This series is made possible with funding from Mark Lewine and the John Gray Painter Program. You can also check out our website to learn more about our upcoming events and stay up to date on new content. You can find us at www.growingdemocracyoh.org. And once again, joining me is Nuj. I feel so lucky we got to record two in a row, although they might be posted out of order. And yet again, you bring an amazing guest for us. Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. Madhu is kind of like a hero of mine, you know, she's, she's an immigrant, but she's also this, uh, uh, for the lack of a better word, a badass uh, immigration attorney, you know, who represents, uh, you know, immigration refugees from many different backgrounds. And she has been known as this uh, leader for a long time in Akron. And she grew up in Ohio as well. So, you know, she has this personal connection as well as a professional one. Yeah, her experience and also just the discussion of her journey was such that I think this might actually be one of my new favorite episodes. So I'm very excited for our listeners to also get to meet our guest today. So joining us today is Madhu, and she is the Director of International Institute of Akron. She's an experienced human rights attorney advancing the rights of asylum seekers, refugees, and victims of human trafficking and smuggling. She has an extensive knowledge of history, culture, civil society, as well as governmental and non-governmental players affecting U.S. immigration laws and policy and Bernese history and politics. Right, so we are so, so lucky today uh, to have Madhu Sharma, and um, this is another person from Akron. I have been advocating for more people from Akron on the podcast, so this is, I'm really excited to have my way with this. Um, And I guess we would just like to start off with hearing from you about what's your story, and could you describe for us a bit about kind of your journey so far to, to arrive at where you're at? Wow. Well, thank you, Casey and Anoush, for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to share my story. Um, I am uh, an Indian immigrant. I came in 1971. Uh, My family, my dad actually came first, and my mom and my sister and I stayed behind, came about 10 months later. That's natural in the immigration process. And in fact, back then, That was a very short wait. Today, that can be a very much longer wait. Um, So we joined my dad in Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where we first lived. And uh, over the years, we moved up to central Ohio to a small farm community called New London, Ohio. And that's where I grew up and graduated from high school. Like most Ohio teenagers, I couldn't wait to get out of Ohio. (laughs) So I went up north 
uh, to the University of Michigan, to that college up north that nobody likes to speak of. And when I graduated, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I think my dream was to be a writer. And my parents, being the immigrant parents and Asian immigrant parents that they are, um, really needed me have a more practical job. <laughs> uh, so they, you know, thought, why not law school? That's an off pursued profession in Indian culture, uh, probably because of Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, so I went to law school. And interestingly, I thought back then it was the early 90s, I thought I was going to do corporate law, um, something that today I would judge harshly. I think I even wanted to work for like an oil company or something. It was crazy. I don't know. I was a different person, but it didn't take long. And it really just took law school for me to, to know about myself and learn about myself that I was really drawn to social justice. And so, you know, it was my last year of law school when I took immigration law and um, it was my last semester even. And it was the worst grade I ever got in my entire academic career. <laughs> But I knew in my heart of hearts that this is this is what I should be doing. I should be helping immigrants um, share their stories, and um, I, and I should be if I'm going to pursue law, let me do it in a way where I'm bringing out the stories of the, of people who I serve, why they came, what drew them here, and um, and yeah, shaping it into the very restrictive U.S. immigration laws. Um, and at the time when I graduated, we had one of the most historical restrictions in the immigration laws. Um, it was 1996 when I graduated, um, and there was a law called IRA-IRA, and it still exists today. And it is what it is a law that made it impossible for someone who came to the United States without inspection to change their status, um, and it created really the problem we have today of um, more than 12 million people living in this country undocumented it started from when I graduated law school. So here we are 20, I think four years later, I don't know, I can't do the math in my head, but 24 years later, I've had a, um, a, a career that led me to through private practice, teaching immigration law. I was a pro bono coordinator for a um, business immigration firm. Uh, I lived and worked in Los Angeles for 20 years before I moved back to Ohio. And when I moved back to Ohio, I really came back because my parents are getting on in age and I'm the middle child of three. And as immigrants do, we um, are here to, you know, I needed to be around to take care of my parents as they age. And so here I am helping to do that. And I uh, really didn't think I could do my work in Ohio. In fact, my cousin came to visit me and I, I said, no, I can't be an immigration lawyer in Ohio. There are no jobs in Ohio for what I do. Um, because I was remembering Ohio that I left in 1989. And I did not know anything really about what had changed. Um, so I, here I am and I... Uh, my cousin's visiting me and she does a job search on Indeed and she finds an opening at the International Institute of Akron for a director of immigration legal services. And the job had posted and had passed. It, I, you know, it was an expired job really, but I decided, well, let me write a letter 
to the the time executive director, and you, you may remember Elaine Willotion. So I wrote her a cover letter saying, I know the job is probably closed, but I'm trying to come back to Ohio and do this work. And um, I looked at the history of the IIA and, you know, I think it would be a good fit. And she hired me. So I came back to Ohio to lead the legal team at the International Institute of Akron, really to, to build it. Um, and uh, sh- not too long after I began working at the Institute, Elaine passed away on Christmas Day. I believe it was December 25th of 2017 that she passed away. And at that time, I stepped in as the acting director. And, um, and you know, within a couple of years, I was named as the director of the International Institute of Akron. Um, so that's, that's somewhat my professional journey. Um, it's the highlights of my professional journey and what brought me back to Akron. Well, thank you, Mizzou. I think that's an excellent segue into the next question. So like you, I am an immigrant as well. So I study immigration, refugee integration. So personally, I think last five to six years have been quite dramatic uh, in terms of immigration, right? Uh, Both good and bad. So I just wanted to get a sense of how you processed these last few years, not just as an attorney, but also as an individual, as an immigrant, Yeah, you know, I'm not sure I've finished processing these last four years. Um, And I'm not sure we've had a chance to process uh, what we went through as a nation um, with respect to the xenophobia that um, really, I think we've always known was there, but uh, there was a spotlight and we had on xenophobia and, and hate and we also had an administration who raised those voices. Um, during the uh, four years that Trump was our president, um, I was spit at on a walking trail um, on the hike and bike trail here in Stowe. I was just walking my dog and someone spit at me and told me to go home. And um, I don't think that's ever happened to me. I know I've gotten looks. I know people have said, um, you know, things that were definitely, you know, stemmed in hate towards me, but I'd never really been what I, as a lawyer, can call an assault. I'd never really been assaulted. So, um, so that's, that was, that was quite a thing for me to experience. And I also feel while I was, you know, being targeted as an immigrant, I was, advocating for and serving immigrants and um, really trying to raise their voices and their experiences and, and shifting the dialogue on the conversation um, on immigrants. What I, what I know is that that time uh, that we went through is something that I'm still processing. And I think we all are still processing. We learned so much about race and hate and our country uh, we have a lot of work to do as a nation. Um, I myself personally um, was back in Ohio and did not know how much of my experience of being back here was a triggering of what I experienced growing up here, right? I grew up in the 1970s and 80s in rural Ohio. And a lot of things um, that were said to me as I grew up, you know, there were things that were hurtful. 
and they impact your sense of self. I'm sure it's why I do what I do, really. But here I am back and I have a voice, you know, and I suddenly I could raise that voice, use that voice. And I knew even that day I was furious and I was crying. I was so angry and upset. But I knew that, um, you know, I win, I win this fight because guess what I do for a living? <laughs> not only um, am I not going home, I'm helping other people come. So I felt like there was some vindication in that, um, you know, it just in the life I'm living. I, I love that response. <laughs> Thank you for uh, you know sharing that uh, that experience, uh, which often can times can be triggering, right? I remember, you know, I've been an immigrant in this country for a long time as well, uh, but only in the last four years, I remember thinking, oh, I should I should be careful where I'm going, at what time of the day I'm going, right? Uh, you know, like you you're always aware of your status as an immigrant, but you know, only in the last four years. I remember thinking, oh, I should be careful what I say at some place where I should go, right? So, so thank you for sharing that. And a lot of times it is difficult to sort of explain that uh, to other individuals. But, you know, I appreciate you sharing that here. Yeah, and Anuj, I can say that weeks after the election, um, I went to the giant eagle in Stowe. And for the first time, I was nervous about just doing something as simple as grocery shopping in public um, because of the rhetoric that was coming out of, um, at the time, our new president's uh, White House. Um, and I, you know, I think also um, I navigate, Casey, you probably can um, appreciate this. And this is a way to help people understand is I do navigate the world as a woman. So I've always been very cautious and concerned for my safety just simply as a woman. But to add that layer, um, it reminded me really a lot of what it was like growing up in the 70s in rural Ohio, where you were just supposed to assimilate, keep your head down, don't rock the boat, um, don't be seen. Because if you're seen too much, there's going to be problems. And I felt like I was re-experiencing that somewhat. And I think that's why I use the word triggering. I know that word's overused, but it literally was triggering um, of the racial harm I had suffered when I was younger. And I know that, you know, we, you know, there's within my family, there's a reverberation of that, right? My 9-11 happens, right? And my brother, um, we're Indian, right? But people don't know the difference sometimes. And so my brother has always been, um, a target of um, hate, even per that's designed to be perpetrated over over Muslims, um, because they don't mm -hmm. understand that he's Indian <laughs> and Hindu, and um, and I remember the day after 9/11, his employer at the time told him that he should stay home and not come to work. Um, so these are just examples, and that's not even to speak to I'm sure the experiences my father and my mother had. Um, many of which I'm just learning about. That, so that's a really interesting uh, segue. It's, it's like you read my mind. I was thinking, you know, when you were telling your story about, so I grew up in the 80s in Phoenix, Arizona. So it's right, the Reagan years. And there's this 
just huge backlash against um, uh, immigrants from Mexico. So anti-Hispanic sentiment was running rampant. And, you know, I remember, you know, there being state legislation to pass where they didn't want any documents that were state documents in any language other than English. It was, uh, and, and, you know, other things like that, but like this attempt to kind of erase uh, uh, not only their existence, but their ability just to access, you know, anybody that didn't speak English, you weren't welcome, right? And you weren't welcome to even read what it is that we're doing. And so I guess it calls to mind a question for me, which is how, how do you view democracy as it pertains to new refugees and immigrants? But also, do you think that has shifted over time or are we kind of returning to, you know, xenophobia of the past that, I don't know, maybe we never abandoned. <laughs> yeah. Um, the first part of your question, I mean, I think I only see that as a, I have to think of it as a lawyer. And I know that our constitution does not fully protect immigrants um, until they become a U.S. citizen, you know, until they naturalize. You don't have the full protections of an American, that an American-born citizen can access through the U.S. constitution. Um, you aren't eligible to vote, right? There are limits of our democracy towards immigrants. I'm not saying that, you know, this that's a right or wrong limitation, but you're very cognizant of that as an immigrant. I mean, one of the things that's reiterated and taught and um, um, discussed over and over again, whether it's from your immigration attorney or your family members is, um, your restriction on voting, that you can't vote, you can't become the president of the United States. So no matter what you dream of, um, this is not accessible to you. And um, you know that until the day you can vote and then you're reminded, but you still can't be the president of the United States, right? And so I think there are, our democracy has certain uh, barriers already in place um, for immigrants and they're due process barriers, but they're also voting rights barriers. And these are not, it's not to say that we should not have those barriers. It's just that we already have a bifurcation in how we treat somebody who is not born in the United States. And that's not unusual. That exists in every nation in the world. Um, so how I view it is really from a constitutional lens. And when I think of modern society and how global we are, right, with the advent of social media and technology, it's almost as if we have no boundaries, right? We have no um, geographic boundaries in how we navigate life anymore. You can live and work um, in a foreign country. Uh, you can live, I should say, in one country and work in another country. Um, and we know that, especially um, during the pandemic. So how then do you protect um, a democracy? Right. And and how do you identify the true risks and and um, I should say the true um, factors that might impede democracy or might um, put at risk a, a democracy? And it's not necessarily the people that are living in the country that are part of your community who are going to seek to undermine democratic principles in America, right? Um, the, the Probably the biggest threats to democracy are not actually threats within the United States and by immigrants. And so 
yeah, you were speaking to an era that I remember well because the beginning of the 90s, um, I, f I, I remember well the litigation across um, the, the Western states predominantly that ended up going to the U.S. Supreme Court in connection to language access in education. And, you know, it is, it is the law of the land from the Supreme Court that you cannot discriminate in the educational context. Um, there are other federal protections in place as well um, that allow for language access, right? You, if you are, um, um, you know, if you are accessing any medical um, facility that gets, receives any financial funding at all, you have a right to an interpreter that's paid for by the medical um, provider. Um, and any federal program, and this is something I hope our listeners embrace, any federal, any program that receives federal funding has to, re, has to provide language access for participants in that program. So that means there are many nonprofits and many service providers in our communities that receive federal funding that really um, it raises the bar. It means we have to do better in creating language access for people. And that language access should exist regardless of where you were born, frankly, right? We know well that you may speak only Spanish when you start going to school. I didn't speak much English at all when I started school. Um, so there, it's very possible that you don't, you know, you were born in the U.S. and you still don't necessarily your your native language spoken in the home is not English. So um, these are all part, it's, I think it's all part of the discussion about the value of um, culture and the history of this nation is founded on, right, immigration, or I should say refugees and immigrants are what this country is made up of, right? The founders of this land who wrote um, our constitution we're refugees. So it's it's not uh, rocket science here. We built a country on these principles. We need to ensure that there's some equity, and I will call it racial equity, in how we treat the future immigrants. Because as we well know, um, you know, our, our newer our newest immigrants are not predominantly European any longer. So and there is a disparity in how our immigration laws are designed to treat um, certain immigrants, you know, certain people who are just seeking a better life, um, all who might meet similar definitions of a refugee, but some of them are incarcerated and jailed and have to pursue asylum at the southern border, and others get to access programs through the United Nations and frankly have to wait too long no matter which program you access, but we do know that there's there are disparities and there are racial implications to our current federal immigration system. And we need to think about these things as we're talking about race as a nation. Um, and I know that we're every progress we make in civil rights in this nation, in voting rights in this nation, um, our uh, black community that is leading the discussion on race, um, they are really setting a, a foundation for us to continue to create um, access and discuss racial barriers for people um, of color from all over the world. And I think um, that, you know, I'm so grateful that out of the mess of the last four years, 
has come a dialogue about race that we all are ready and need to be having. I hope that answers both your questions. All right, thank you. Uh, so let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the great work that you do in Akron, right? So you represent uh, immigrants and refugees of many different backgrounds, which I can only imagine don't necessarily have the privileges and the voice that you and I may have, for example, right? So I was just curious if you could sort of articulate some of the primary challenges new refugees refugees and immigrants uh, might face uh, when they're new to the society and uh, how do they or an organization like International Institute sort of helps them address these issues? So the heart of our mission, no matter how much it's changed over the 100 years that the Institute has been in existence, has always been to foster a sense of home for immigrants and, you know, to uh, fill those um, access barriers for people who are new to the country. Um, that's evolved over time, but there's some core things that have always existed, right? We, we just identified one, which was which is language access. So IIA has a, an education program to help teach life skills, job skills, and English um, to new arriving immigrants, um, immigrants and refugees, obviously. Um, and then we, you know, security, having work and a job and starting out when you have low or no skills or have no English ability is also a key barrier for people. So our organization has employability services or employment services where we work with um, our, our uh, newly arriving refugees to help them find their first job. And sometimes, you know, it's not where they will, we hope that where they start is not where they land forever, but it's a start, you know, and our, our job really is to work with employers in the community to ensure that people have are treated well in the workplace, that they're paid fair wages um, and that they um, have some agency and there's some appreciation for what is, I think most of us are calling it diversity, equity, and inclusion, but the employers with whom we work ought to have policies um, that are in furtherance of DEI work. Um, but we also have legal services, right? Because um, when you come as a refugee or you come under, um, you know, maybe you're not, you know, we have, we serve immigrants who are undocumented in the community as well. We have, we serve immigrants who might've come as a student and now they want to change their status um, we serve immigrants who have come and they've left family members behind. So they're trying to reunify with family members, petition their family members to bring them over. So we have a legal team that helps create that family reunification, legal, st legal status st stability in the United States. Um, and we are, you know, there's not many immigration lawyers in the state of Ohio. There's um, not many who serve um people who have low income. And our, our target is to create access um, to low people who maybe have low or no income. Um, and then we also have our resettlement team is made up of individuals who help refugees come to the United States. And in those first 90 days, we, we do everything from secure um, an apartment for them to rent or a home for them to rent to then once we've secured that space, picking them up at the airport, ensuring that they have a culturally specific warm meal on their first day in the United States, 
um, providing some very basic furnishings for that apartment. And I always tell people that as much as you want to fill that space with all the things you want, you think they want, they do like to pick out their own things when they come and create a sense of their own home. So we, we like to ensure that they have that dignity of creating their own space in their own home as well. Um, our resettlement team are social service providers. So, um, you know, we are kind of here to be that cushion for people when they first arrive. Um, there's a lot of trauma in just moving. <laughs> and I think every American, every listener can relate to moving from one community to another has a lot of, uh, it's just a lot of stress, right? But when you add to it, um, coming out of uh, potential conflict or war or um, the fact that just the definition of a refugee is someone who's been persecuted, um, then you know that the, the communities that we resettle, you know, they have particular um, uh, barriers in place that they need to overcome so that they can live healthy, successful lives. Uh, but I can say this, and I always do, is I, I don't like to define um refugees and immigrants as vulnerable or vulnerable populations because I've been so privileged for over 20 years working with immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers and to they give me so much perspective on life and I cannot say it enough that um, they are embodiment of human resilience and you know we don't want to have to be resilient but as human beings we all are and, um, you know, I always tell people that you will never, um, no matter what individuals have been through, you can't give them or you can't um, think that you're going to give them purpose or you're going to give them a sense of themselves. They, they have that dignity when they come. They have that sense of themselves when they come. And you just want to ensure that they can continue to, to you know, access their their dreams once they arrive. So IIA's goal really is to ensure that we create that sense of belonging for people. We're federally funded in many programs that we have um, aside from legal. And I think that is the, um, you know, that creates certain barriers in how we serve because the federal government gets to decide um, what these programs should look like. But I always say that that's our base and we always do more and we improve upon the federal base of our programs. Now, I wonder if you could uh, do us a favor and our listeners a favor and switch topics a little bit to talk about kind of the current status and, you know, the, the humanitarian parole status of uh, Afghans and specifically thinking about, you know, resettled refugees. Uh, if you're not from the area, you should know that there are a lot of refugees uh, from Afghanistan in, um, in Akron. And, it, you know, if you're also not aware, uh, uh, maybe you can expand a little bit more on what the, the difficult or it, it wasn't difficult, actually. What? Why it took so long <laughs> for um, for you know Afghan refugees to be resettled, even though this had been promised to them for years? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, we have been reset. The International Institute of Akron has been resettling people from Afghanistan since 2013. I don't know if many people know that. Um, before U.S. troops 
um, evacuated, we had probably just over 200 um, Afghans who had already been resettled to our community. And so as soon as we uh, heard in late July that U.S. troops were evacuating, um, we had our phones ringing off the hook. And mostly they were our clients who had either been resettled by IAA or World Relief. Um, and uh, they were worried about their families who were stuck in Afghanistan. They didn't know how they were going to get their family on an airplane to get them airlifted out. Um, our legal team uh, took did over 300 consults in one month uh, with people who were concerned about family members. Um, and we worked with our local representatives to let them know, you know, who, who these individuals were. Um, in the end, we didn't have a lot of power to decide who was going to get on a plane and who wasn't. And we knew that we told our clients that, um, and our, uh, you know, the Afghan community, we, we ensured that they understood that, uh, we would do what we, everything we could, but there was not much to be done. And a lot of it was going to be, you know, the efforts of U.S. military on the ground in Afghanistan that we were just out of the loop on. So when people came, um, most who we've resettled since August 1st have from Afghanistan were airlifted out of Afghanistan in those first um, few weeks. Um, they were processed at eight U.S. military bases in the United States for resettlement. Um, so they'd probably been waiting two to three months before they even came to us. I think our biggest um, resettlement month last year was November. We resettled 100 people from Afghanistan in the month of November, meaning they were waiting since August to be resettled. And then because they didn't come through the normal refugee resettlement process, which is operated by the United Nations and then secondarily by the U.S. government through the Program for Refugees and Migration, they were instead processed at U.S. military bases domestically. And even though I think the U.S. laws, uh, there's um, you could interpret the law to allow for refugee status, even if you were in, in country process, but that is not how our government chose to, to um, process individuals. And so they were given um, a status that is temporary um, and they're in limbo. They're in a temporary legal status in the United States um, that will expire within two years and they need to apply for asylum. Um, the asylum system has a significant backlog. I mean, we've, it's just like a 10 year wait almost. I'm exaggerating. It's not, it's probably not quite that long, but I have clients that I've represented that um, came to the U.S. border, applied for asylum, and it took them 10 years to actually secure asylum. So when I say there's a 10 year, it's not a wait, it's just the processing you know, and the judicial, the immigration system, which is not an Article Three court, it's not a judicial system, it's an administrative court. Um, they just don't have enough, I should say, I want to say manpower, but people power. They don't have enough people processing the volumes of cases. 
And so to add Afghan um, evacuees into that group of individuals is, is almost unfair. So we have been advocating for and and there is um, right now at the in the um, Senate and Congress is debating over the Afghan Adjustment Act so that perhaps they can get a streamlined pathway to permanent residency and U.S. citizenship. Um, not, you know, streamlined only in that they won't have to file applications for asylum. Asylum is a discretionary form of relief. It's very very difficult to have an asylum approved in the United States. So there's probably a more effective way for them to gain status than have to join the, the many people that are already waiting in backlogs through the U.S. asylum process. Um, and by the way, you know, it's just, it's spotlighted how few immigration attorneys we had, particularly in the state of Ohio, we just don't have enough people to serve the volumes of individuals that were welcomed into our state. And it's not because, you know, it really is just the, the, um, the need to support funding for the creation of nonprofit immigration lawyers. So that is framework has started to be built because of Afghan um, refugees that have come to the United States. So. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, many of these refugees, and I don't, I don't know, maybe all of them, um, were were assisting U.S. military personnel when they were serving in, in Afghanistan, and and that that they're fleeing not just so it's not just violence they're fleeing, but very targeted mm-hmm. uh, retribution against you know them because of the role that they served. I mean, do you see that you know kind of barriers that were unique about this group of people that uh, maybe they didn't just didn't need to have these barriers, um, but that this kind of this group of refugees were were encountering barriers that were unusual or unlike other resettled refugees in the past. Right, right. So about a third of the people that at least our organization has resettled were helpful to the U.S. military. And may have already filed what's called a special immigrant visa for being working with the US military before they even arrived to the United States. Um, And I'm just speaking to the population that we have resettled. We've only received about a third of those individuals, but other resettlement agencies may have different demographics that arrived. But what you point out is true. Like, you know, before U.S. troops pulled out of Afghanistan, it was taking 18 months at minimum to process somebody who applied for a special immigrant visa because of threats of violence based on their help to the U.S. military in Afghanistan. Um, I don't, you know, I'm just going to say what, since 9-11, what makes this population unique is they are Muslims and they are um, you know, from a country that's majority Muslim and vetting um, somebody uh, for resettlement or for any immigrant visa who um, is from a majority Muslim country is a very onerous, long process. Um, and does it have to be? Well, I think it's just the policy of the federal government right now, but it definitely um, I think is the antithesis of what the founding fathers created this nation for, because in some sense, it's, um, you know, in 
my personal opinion, it's it's a form of discrimination, religious-based discrimination. And um, so, yeah, we got to do better. We, we have to do better for people that, um, you know, we were engaged in a 20-year war um, in their homeland. So they are displaced because of our um, diplomatic and or failure of diplomacy, I should say. But so we definitely have, I think, nationwide support um, across um, political lines, I think across religious um, differences that um, favor uh, better policies um, and more stability for the Afghan community that we've evacuated and resettled to our, you know, that not all are here. We're still waiting for some to arrive that are still outside of the U.S. So there's so much work to be done and we have to get on the path of being more effective because quite frankly, politicians are going to have um, the American constituency to answer to. And I have never in all my career seen such a, um, a diverse group of supporters for a particular population of resettled refugees. And I think it has to do with, um, you know, the fact that we were engaged in war for their war there for so long. And we uh, feel an obligation, almost like a national shame for having, um, you know, displaced people who are now our neighbors, right? They're just, we need to create and I think um, the hope I have is that people will call their representatives and they'll push and advocate um, in favor of their values. And I'm not joking when I say I've never seen Republicans and Democrats alike across all religious divides. And I'm not I'm not I don't want to sugarcoat it because I know we've also seen um, a little bit, you know, it's been a few months since people have arrived and we're also seeing signs of Islamophobia and xenophobia. It's not as if it's going to be perfect. We are going to be doing some real work as a nation, a lot of self-reflection on what it means to be who we are as Americans. Well, yeah, that is very informative, not just of the legal process, but how race, uh, maybe ethnicity, uh, religion, ten tends to intersect with uh, immigration and how we view immigrants. Right. So... So I recently read that the U.S. government has approved a resettlement of Ukrainian refugees, right? You know, I'm sure they would love to stay in Europe, but if they were to come to the U.S., they might be resettled. And now, this might be a kind of an unfair imaginative question for you, Madhu, but do you think, uh, you know, a Ukrainian refugee for just being white and European, right? Do you think their social reception is going to be different from, I don't know, an Afghan refugee or a refugee from a Muslim society. I mean, feel free to reframe it however you want. I, I know this is a, this is asking sort of a hypothetical question from you. No, you know what? I don't want to reframe it. I think you asked the question quite pointedly in the right way. And I also think, um, yeah, we'd be lying to ourselves if we think it's going to be any kind of equity in how Afghans are treated and people from Ukraine are treated just by virtue of the fact that Ukrainians are European and they're white. I mean, there's no... If we're going to talk honestly about race and immigration, um, we have to acknowledge that we have different rules. Um, and the laws are the same, but when you look at how the laws are applied, there is always going to be an equity based on race. Um, and 
So I hope, and I appreciate that you stated um, at the outset that as much as they may want to stay in Europe, because I do think there is this, there is this outpouring of support for Ukrainians, which just shows, um, you know, how, um, you know, when you see a reflection of yourself in displaced people, there is going to be um, an acknowledgement that this could be me, right? And I'm not going to say that that opportunity to spotlight just humanity is really that. It's an opportunity. But let's talk about, let's acknowledge that um, that the response and the reaction might be different if people don't look like you. And let's acknowledge that across races, right? Um, and so, you know, I happen to have um, worked in this field for so long, and I've seen humanitarian efforts overseas. I've seen U.S. immigration laws reflect humanitarian um uh, uh, human the the it kind of supports the humanitarian um, foundation of U.S. immigration laws to um, allow for refugee resettlement, allow for asylum. There's other forms of relief that are humanitarian based, like temporary protected status, for example. Um, and but I also have to say that um, if you do this work and you serve people from all over the world, you see the very clear. It's not even nuanced the very clear division and how people are treated based on the color of their skin and often based on their religion as well. So I think your question is important. Like, let us have that conversation and let's not see it as just um, judgment and criticism. You know, I not to sound like Ted Lasso, I don't even watch the show, but I've heard the saying, be curious. <laughs> and I think we need to be curious. And part of being curious as a, as a community, and I'm going to speak to the Akron communities, let's ask those questions. Let's understand that we're not, when we're speaking about race and refugees and Ukrainians versus Afghans, we're not speaking about it in order to say we, you know, we should be resettling them, not these people. You know, we should not be picking and choosing, but let's acknowledge the opportunity to learn about ourselves as a resettlement community, as a community, as people on how we think about other humans, you know, and it's humanitarian work, really. It's not about putting yourself in someone else's shoes. It really isn't. Um, that, and it's not walking in their shoes. That's not really empathy, right? Um, empathy, and compassion, which is what is necessary to do humanitarian work, requires listening and humility. And that's it. I can't pretend I know everything. And that's why I think um, those who do this work for a long time, were, um, we feel very privileged to do the work because of how much we learn about ourselves, about other people, just from not assuming anything about anyone. And I think one thing to learn as a community um, is that, yeah, we're going to treat Catholics different than we treat Muslims. And we're going to treat um, people who are white different than we're going to treat someone from the Middle East. And why we don't, do we want to be that? And if we're not, if we don't want to be that, let's at least acknowledge that there might be some 
need to um, advocate or discuss race and religion in the process of welcoming refugees to the United States, regardless of from where they come. And, you know, we haven't even mentioned Congolese, right? And these are um, one of the largest populations of refugees that we've resettled in the last three years through the Institute. And they're black. You know, they're, they're from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Many are Christian. Many are even Catholic. Um, but I'm, you're not hearing a lot of discussion about South Asian refugees and and uh, refugees coming from the Democratic Republic of Congo, right? So I, not to, re, you know, I, I think I take every opportunity I can to remind our community that, um, you know, IIA, we, we welcome anyone from all over the world. We're not picking and choosing. We're not advocating for one community over another. We're advocating for all immigrants, whether they came as refugees, um, whether they um, are, you know, came as a student visa holder who wanted to change their status, um, whether they came uh, as asylum seekers, whether they came to for employment reasons, we we know that there is a shared human experience, um, and we aren't, you know, a lot of times we get called and asked to do something on behalf of a particular population, and. Um, it feels a little bit, I, I call it the ick. Is this going to pass the ick? Are, am I feeling icky about this? And I use that in work. I always know that it's not my job to feel kind of, this is not aligned with the values, right, of our organization and our mission. So uh, I have to say one thing about Ukrainian refugees, and um, I do believe everybody wants to go home to Ukraine. They want their country to survive this invasion of their land. And uh, I think the world, you, you know, most um, American citizens support that desire and want them to also have a homeland to go home to. Um, and we know that when and if um, Ukrainians are resettled to the United States um, or do wish to come here, that IIA will be ready to, to welcome them as well. And I think our community will support that because we've had an outpouring of support in that regards too. We are not seeking item donations or financial donations for Ukrainians because we are so at this stage disconnected from the work of resettling Ukrainians. Because as much as the president said that we will be resettling 100,000, we don't know when. So um, it would seem that any efforts to help Ukrainians ought to go to the organizations that are doing the humanitarian work in Europe on the ground. And that's where I would wish for people to go. If anyone wishes to know where they might, you know, which organizations they might support, you can go to our website at iiacron.org and we do have a list of organizations on the ground there. It's like you're reading my mind. Two follow-up questions I had, which was how can people help? <laughs> you took that over. and So I guess I'm left with, uh, la do you have any last words of wisdom you would like, any big takeaways you would like our listeners to have from this conversation? You know, I think the biggest takeaway is I was just having this conversation with one of um, with our outreach coordinator today. Um, I think we are in a place as a nation, as a community, as Americans to self-reflect. And your opening question, I believe, is a highlight or a spotlight on where we need to find space to do the work of processing what we've been through as a nation, not just 
um, you know, uh, an era where xenophobia and hate were spotlighted, but then a pandemic that is still continuing to this day. And it may seem separate from our mission. Um, it may seem like, oh, Madhu's going to say a nice catchphrase that highlights IIA and their mission. Um, but I, I feel that self-reflection is so deeply necessary as a community so that we can do the work together as a community of welcoming and creating a sense of belonging for new arrivals. Because we got to do it with humility and we really have to do it with the self-awareness of our the barriers we put in the way for people who are coming. And each of us has our own work to do. Each of us does. And I, I just hope and I encourage listeners to, um, you know, take that curiosity and study, learn something about yourself, read something about history, um, seek to understand um, yourself so that you're better able to understand people that are very different from you. Well, thank you, Mizzou. Uh, that was a privilege and honor to have you here. I, I feel like I learned a whole lot. Uh, maybe just a drop of what you learn uh, every year, every month, right? With all these all these political upheavals being thrown at you away. Uh, so I really sincerely thank you. I feel pretty lucky to do what I do. I mean, it's like, it's amazing. And this, this actually participating with you guys, what, how fun was this? Let's do this every time. <laughs> <laughs> right? That works. Yeah. The funnest. This is the yeah. best part of my job. <laughs> I know. I want your job too. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Anuj, and my co-host this week was Casey. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio in Cleveland, Ohio. The series is supported by Mark Lewine and the John Gray Panther Program. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. If you want to support the podcast, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, and swag, featuring designs by Donuts and Coffee, head over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about race and democracy.